I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm happy to be here with you today. And I think Texas, it's a pretty good place to be for spring break. It's pretty nice out there, unless you have allergies. Let me get out my verse sheet. I want to talk today about paths. Paths are good things. They take us places. Um, We get to where we need to go. If we're hiking or we're biking or we're skiing. But how many of you ever got off a path and got you into trouble? I know, it's pretty scary when you get on the wrong path. Okay, my favorite path story, though, is Deb Haygood's, which um, always makes me laugh to think about it. She was young, no kids yet, married, and she and another couple were doing this ministry with college kids, and they thought, hey, let's take them, um, do some discipleship camping with them. And so, of course, they don't think about any of uh, the logistics of camping. They don't get a tent. They show up at 1 a.m. on the campgrounds. So it's pitch black. They don't know where to go. They're kind of wandering around in the dark. They find this patchy area, and they say, let's just sleep here. So they just lie down and go to sleep. In the morning, people are walking on them and stepping over them and stepping on them, and they're kind of sound asleep and annoyed, and they look up and realize they are in the path to the bathrooms. And there's like mud around them, and it's wet, and there they are. So the moral of the story is if you're going to go camping, take a tent, go when it's daytime. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been on a path that has been leading him to the cross, and never does he step off of it, because never did he lose sight of his final destination, getting to the cross was his passion and his purpose. And while he walked his path to the cross, he was forging for us today the path of discipleship. If we look closely at his footsteps, we can understand that he's provided a map for us, his followers, on the steps that we're supposed to take today so we don't get on the wrong path, so we don't get lost. Did you notice how lost they were in this chapter? Every story is like, they're totally confused. Um, Everybody doesn't understand Jesus' teaching. And it was funny to me. Marriage is a covenant? What? Children? You love children? What? You like needy people? Blind people? What? It's hard for rich people to enter God's kingdom? What? In order to be great, you have to be a servant? What? Every idea they had about being a follower of God was incorrect. (laughs) Jesus has been trying to teach them the true path of discipleship. That's what he's continuing to do in chapter 10. He's on a path. He's left Galilee. He's going through Judea and Perea. And we can connect the words and the actions of Jesus in this story to all of his teachings on discipleship in this whole chapter. He is our example of what it means to be a disciple of God. 
So I want to begin by looking at the path he was walking. They're coming down from the Jordan Valley, and he will be mentioning for the first time his final destination of Jerusalem. This will be Jesus' third passion prediction. They got more detailed each time he predicted his death. This one's the most detailed and the most horrific. So look at chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem. The realization of their destiny immediately draws a response from the disciples around him and possibly another group that was following The atmosphere is heavy with the apostles' dread as soon as they hear that word. Some were astonished, that means surprised. Some were afraid, that means afraid. Very afraid. And they were probably just hiking merrily along when they heard this word Jerusalem and the mood was changed. And we have to ask ourselves, why? What brought such fear into their hearts? They'd been to Jerusalem with Jesus before. The difference is now they are aware of the growing hatred toward Jesus. They understand this and towards his followers. And many times we've studied in the last few weeks, they have met these angry, hostile Jewish leadership who leave Jerusalem and go all the way to Galilee to try to entrap Jesus. And so maybe the disciples knew that they were bent on the death of Jesus. And Jesus had warned them twice before what was going to happen once they got to Jerusalem. We get the feeling they weren't really quick on the draw. They maybe weren't catching all that, but maybe some of his words were coming back to them when he says the name Jerusalem. And I think maybe they got a good look at the grim determination on the face of Jesus. And there was a foreboding presence about that for them. Maybe it reminded them of Isaiah 57. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I wish we were on the path. Um, Do we have that um, picture of the path? I actually never discussed it with anyone today. Yay! Okay, it might have looked something like this. I want you to picture a line of men in robes and in sandals, and I want you to picture Jesus out in front. He lifts up his eyes in the direction of Jerusalem. Uh, It was common for rabbis to walk ahead of the people they were teaching, but this rabbi is leading the disciples to his own death with great commitment to the suffering and the sacrifice that is before him. So we can't just dismiss this scene. I want us to gaze into the face and the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking determined steps toward the cross. It's a lonely place, and he's alone out in front. And here's our first clue of what it means to be a disciple of God today. To walk the path of discipleship, we must be committed to doing the will of God. 
Each step that Jesus took were obedient steps to what God had called him to do for us, for our salvation. And Jesus knew full well what the cost would be to bear our sins on that cross. He knew these verses in Isaiah 50 on your verse sheet. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and from spitting. Now one thing, I want to give the disciples a pat on the back. When they heard the word Jerusalem, they knew the dangers that were there. Jesus could have turned around on that path and found out they were totally gone. They could have run for their lives. But they stayed here. And we have to say, how did they do that? Well, picture them on the path. Who were they looking at the whole time? They kept their eyes on the back of Jesus. Jesus kept his eyes on his final destination of Jerusalem for our destination of eternity with him. And they moved forward keeping their eyes on the person of Christ and his sacrifice for us. So we learn from both of them to stay committed to God's will if we are like Jesus, we fix our eyes on our heavenly destination and we make choices then that will reflect this world is not my home. We will make choices that show we have an eternal inheritance. And the disciples teach us, keep our eyes on the sacrifice of Jesus. It will give us the strength and the conviction to keep moving forward in obedience like Jesus did. Look at Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary. And lose heart. I want to look at an illustration in this chapter of those who had turned from God's will. When Jesus first entered Judea and Perea, he's once again surrounded by crowds. That is what happened to Jesus. He had great authority, great wisdom. The people gathered around him. And he's teaching and the people are loving it. But rising out of the group of the people who want to be taught are the people who want to entrap. And they stand before Jesus, the Pharisees. And they challenge everything we just learned about being committed to the will of God. They are committed to the ways of men. And they use the institution of marriage to test him, hoping they could arouse opposition against Jesus. So they ask him, tell us, Rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Immediately, the crowd gets quiet. They want to hear this teacher's answer to this question. They are hoping, the Pharisees, somehow he will incriminate himself when he answers their question. Maybe he would contradict Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. They believe those verses condone divorce. And basically, these verses just mention if a husband divorces his wife, he has to write a certificate of divorce. This is if the wife becomes displeasing to him because of indecency. From this little passage, the Pharisees had unwisely decided three things, 
and taught these things. One, God was fine with divorce. Two, only a husband could initiate divorce. Three, if you're divorced, it implies you have the right to marry someone else. But the Jewish community disagreed on this word indecency. What are the grounds for divorce? So there were two rabbinical teachings being taught of why a man could divorce his wife. One, only if the woman was guilty of immorality. This was Rabbi Shammai's opinion. Two, for just about any reason he felt. That was Rabbi Hillel's opinion, including burning the toast, dancing in the streets, hearing that you're putting down your in-laws, talking too much, being too loud, or just if you find somebody who's better. Okay, which rabbinical teaching do you think Israel was liking to follow? The liberal one. Marriage was in bad shape, and a man felt, God, is it fine with marriage? I do this, I can divorce her, I found someone I like better. The commitment to God's plan for marriage was gone. They were not understanding of it. In fact, a small group leader said today, Matthew 22:29 says, Jesus once told the Pharisees, you err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. This is where we find them. And I think the Pharisees may have been hoping Jesus would pick one of these rabbinical teachings. Because then what would happen to his followers? They would immediately begin getting mad and doing this. And then they'd get mad at Jesus and it would cause all sort of division. Another thing they might have liked is for Herod to get wind that there was a teacher, Jesus, he knew of him, talking about marriage and remarriage. Jesus was in Perea at the time. This was the jurisdiction of Herod. And remember, I believe Deb taught um, in Mark 6, Herod had John the Baptist arrested because he came down on Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. So they might have thought, yeah, speak up a lot, Jesus. Maybe Herod will hear about you. Maybe we can get you arrested. Jesus immediately answers this test, this trick, By turning to the word of God. Whenever we are in doubt, what is the will of God? That's what we should do too. Look at Mark 10 verse 3. What did Moses command you, Jesus replied. And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Knowing the word of God means we can know the will of God. Jesus asks them, what did Moses command about divorce? And this forces them to admit Moses did not command it, Moses permitted it. Moses acknowledged the presence of divorce, but he did not institute it, and he did not authorize it. These words from Deuteronomy 24 recognize the reality of divorce among the Jewish people, and it was written to protect the rights of the women who were being casually divorced by their husbands. They had a certificate that had what the indecent thing was they had done on it, and they could actually prove that they were innocent in this. 
Also, it was a way for these women, if a man did this to them, they had a certificate to show that they were, um, could remarry at that point. So all of this was done in light of um, the, the problem of divorce in, in the area that God was trying to help these women. Uh, this was all a result of the hearts of the Jewish nation. Moses is helping to control the divorce situation that they have gotten themselves into. So they had abandoned God's original intent of marriage and replaced it with their own ideas. And here's what I love next. Jesus says, let's go back to the word of God and see the original will of God when it comes to marriage. He takes them all the way back to the beginning of creation, to let them know marriage was God's plan. That's why he created male and female, distinct but equal, complementary of each other. Leaving father and mother to be united, that means having a new life, becoming one flesh. Here's what Barclay says about that. The very nature of things, marriage was a permanency which indissolubly united two people into one in such a way that the bond could never be broken by any human laws and regulations. It was his belief, God's belief, that in the very constitution of the universe, marriage is meant to be an absolute permanency and unity and no mosaic regulation dealing with the temporary situation could alter it. It was so close a bond that when Paul talks about Christ in the church, he uses marriage as an illustration. Later, when Paul talks about the believer in Christ, he uses marriage as an illustration. That's how close the bond was. Jesus adds one more truth about marriage that Israel had ignored. He said, Men should not separate what God has put together. If God is the creator of marriage, he is a part of this union, and you men of Israel should not be breaking casually what God has been a part of. So God's plan for marriage was a covenant to a lifelong union, and we read in Matthew that the disciples said, What? What are you talking about? Who would even want to get married then? That's what they actually said to him. Amazing. It tells you the state of marriage at the time. So when Jesus gets them alone, he explains to them that those who divorce and remarry have committed adultery. Now, some people interpret Jesus' words. You might want to write this down, Matthew 19.9, that there's an exception to this when there's been um, unfaithfulness on the side of the spouse. Jesus' point to these leaders is, be committed to the will of God, including in the institution of marriage. And guess what? Those of us who are married need to teach this, live this, work on this, because it's not always easy. And those who are engaged to be married need to embrace this, that this is God's original intent, because being committed to the will of God keeps us on the path of discipleship. Sometimes God's will is not done in a life. God will continue to work what is best under the circumstances in that life when we seek him. 
Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. He forgives, he cleanses, he renews the divorce, and he restores us to kingdom work. He sets us back on the path of discipleship again because guess what? The church is full of people who have sinned and stepped off the path of God. You all would agree about that? And we find ourselves, by the incredible grace of God, back on the path again. We can praise God for that. Okay, to walk the path of discipleship, we must be humble. I want us to look back to Jesus as he's looking at Jerusalem. Verse 32 and 33. Let's start with 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And I think possibly the most bitter sting of all was not the rejection of Jesus by Israel, but that in order to reject Jesus, Israel will betray their Messiah into the hands of the Gentiles. The Jews desired the death of Christ. They accomplished it in the hands of the Gentiles who were considered unclean, those apart from the law. And the reason is the Jewish leadership lacked um, the uh, power to exercise capital punishment. So therefore, they lied and they manipulated and they pushed and they placed and pushing Jesus in the arm of the Romans who could exercise capital punishment. And this is where we see the great humility of Christ. Here he stands, the creator of the universe, Before his creation, in this case, Israel, the nation he has called out to be his own, the nation he has set apart, that he has loved and protected from the first moment he called Abraham out of the futile life of living in the Gentile nations that worshiped gods made out of clay and made out of stone. Israel received the manna and the promises and the prophets and the law and the miracles and the land and the blessings. And now they are pushing the one true holy God of Israel into the hands of the pagan nation of Rome, the very people Jesus have rescued them from. And Jesus stands quietly while it happens. In his great humility. Jesus humbly set aside self to accomplish the greater purpose of our salvation. Look at Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how might we imitate the humility of Jesus so we stay on the path of discipleship? Really, three words, set aside self. Set aside self for the greater purposes of God and the world. That is so hard for us to do. When we walk proudly 
through this life, we are not on the path that Jesus walked. There's an illustration of humility. Look at verse 13 in chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Okay, here we see another picture. It seems very difficult for the disciples to allow people to come to Jesus. I'm not sure what that was all about. Sometimes I think it was a protection, but sometimes I think it was out of ignorance. I think they thought like the world thought and, and thought people of importance earn the right to get close to Jesus. And Jesus harshly, the word rebukes them, is a harsh word. He harshly rebukes them when they attempt to act out this principle that they've made up in their head. So we can stand back in the scene. We look down on Jesus. He's surrounded by children. We realize the disciples are wrong about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not gained by our merit, but is received as a gift through humble trust in his merit. What does a child have to offer Jesus? Nothing. But Jesus had everything to offer them. Simple trust. That is our way to approach God. God wraps his arms around those who approach him humbly. To walk the path of discipleship, we must be willing to sacrifice. Let's go back to Jesus on his path. Look at verse 34. He's still talking to the disciples. And he says, they'll hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And in this verse, we realize the depth of Jesus' sacrifice for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice of his life for ours. And I think there's a possibility. Remember when they took Jesus away and they took him to the high priest's house and Peter sort of followed from a distance? I wonder if Peter saw some of the flogging and the mocking and the spitting of Jesus. And if he did, maybe he was thinking of it on your verse sheet when he wrote 1 Peter 2. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We can tell from the verse we just read that suffering and sacrifice is on the path to discipleship. And that's going to look different for each one of us. Some of you could already stand up and testify to this. Some of us have things to testify in the future. But we will suffer and we will sacrifice. There's an illustration about it in chapter 10. Look at verse 17. 
As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is a young man that desires to do the right things. This is a young man who's proud of his moral accomplishments. This is a young man who has made a place for himself in the world. This is a young man who Jesus looks at and immediately loves. But this is a young man who does not understand that no matter how good he is, it will never be good enough to inherit eternal life. And Jesus wants to reveal to him the true condition of his heart. And the way to his heart was to talk about his possessions. So when Jesus exposes his deep attachment to material things and the truth that he's unable to sacrifice these things for God's kingdom, we watch this rich young ruler sadly and slowly walk away. The disciples watch him as he fades out of the picture. It's the heart that determines if we will rid ourselves of all the things that stand between us and God. And Jesus responds, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. Now, lots of people have tried to say, oh, there was a gate called the needle gate. No, nobody's been able to find that. It was about a camel getting through the eye of a needle to prove impossibility. This was a Jewish proverb. Once again, we see the disciples standing there with their mouths open. What? Surely people with wealth and importance have access to God. If the rich can't be saved, they say, who can? If they can't, who can? And God's answer, Jesus' answer is, with God, all things are possible. In other words, it's by the grace of God alone. And the proper response to those who want to walk the path of discipleship is to be willing to set aside all those obstacles in our path that keep us from having a relationship with him. And then Peter's listening closely. He's watching the guy walk away and he yells out, We left everything. Look at us. We left everything. We're following you. And he's really proud. But the reality is that they pretty much did do that. They might have been just some miserable little fishing nets they left lying on a shore. But they left them. They left them to follow Jesus. I think Peter was kind of patting himself on the back here a little bit. But let's see what Jesus says. Verse 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. 
homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. I think he says verse 31 for Peter's sake. Many who think they're first will be last. Just so Peter will kind of quit patting himself on the back here. He's letting them know it's all about God. God is the judge of how well we're doing here. Here's the three promises Jesus tells them. You who sacrificed your treasures for Jesus will receive a hundred times as much. And he means those of us and those at that time who had to walk away from relationships and money and jobs and give up positions and give up time will find huge riches in the fellowship of believers, our new brothers and sisters, our new mothers, our new family. We have to ask ourselves on the path, is what I'm doing what I want to do or what God wants me to do? I want this. Is this what God wants for me? What is God's will? That's how we stay on the path. And sacrifice will always be involved. I have a friend in the church. I'm, I've been so amazed by her. She lives next door to a woman who's really needy, whose family's not around. She's elderly. And it's not easy for my friend. But she realizes this is a sacrifice God has called me to do to constantly go over and care for this elderly woman, even when her family has chosen not to do it. And then she's got little kids of her own. And, but she is being obedient to the will of God. It would be so easy to say, I've got soccer practice. I've got this. I'm taking care of my family. She stopped and said, God, what is your will here? He said, go next door and help this woman. That's how we stay on the path of discipleship. I thought about Paul. When he was Saul and he was this religious leader and then he has this incredible experience with Jesus on the road. Do you think his family came running out of their house behind and said, yay, Paul, have fun following this weird guy named Jesus who lived in Nazareth and was a carpenter. Yay, go. He lost them probably. But if you look at the end of all the chapters that Paul wrote, his letters, he says, say hi to my brother here, my sister here. She's like a mother to me. He's been blessed a hundred times with the riches of the Christian family. Notice in verse 30 that it says, you will be given a hundred times as much, and it mentions mothers, children, fields, but it doesn't mention father. And I think it's because God is the one father of the whole family of God. I read this uh, fun story about a man who was a missionary. His name was uh, Edgerton Young. He preached the gospel to the Red Indians in Saskatchewan. And he was preaching them the idea of fatherhood and of God. And it fascinated men who had seen God only in the thunder and the lightning and the stormy blast. So an old Indian chief said to Mr. Young, Did I hear you say to God, our father? And Mr. Young said, I did. And the chief said again, God is your father? And he said, yes, he is. He certainly is. And suddenly the chief's fate lit up with a new radiance. His hand went out, and then he said, as if he were making a startling discovery, then you 
and I are brothers. That is the truth. And then Mr. Young says this, It may be that a man may have to sacrifice ties that are very dear in order to become a Christian, but when he does so, he becomes a member of a family and a brotherhood as wide as earth and heaven. I have some friends in Asia right now, and one of them was telling me, who's a new believer, oh, I got to hear the story of Cindy, and I got to hear the story of Jody, and I got to, and I realized she had never experienced what really relationships could be, the depth of them, when we're believers in Jesus Christ. And she was so excited to tell me. She, everything she does every day is to go to hear a story, and then that person becomes a new sister in her life. That's what Jesus is promising here. Second, he says, you will receive eternal life. Walk in this path of discipleship. But did you notice he throws the word persecution in there? It's sort of like an afterthought. And by the way, some persecution. And these things. (laughs) What if all they heard was, you'll be rewarded, you'll have all these great things. So people might be tempted to say, I'm a follower of Jesus just for what they can get out of it. Just for thinking, I'm going to get more rich and more people. More, I'll be more important. So he wants to remind them the path of discipleship will also include persecution. Okay, to walk the path of discipleship, we must choose to serve others. This goes hand in hand with sacrifice, I believe, servanthood. Jesus also forged this path for us. Look at verse 45. Jesus is telling his disciples, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The servant steps Jesus took toward the cross demonstrated the heavenly way to greatness. It was not a throne he walked to. It was a tree. It was not glory he walked to. It was suffering. It was not a position he walked to. It was a purpose. And he completed his purpose in three years on his hands and knees, walking miles, serving, serving, serving. And then finally serving by giving his life as a ransom for many. And that means a payment to effect the release of slaves from bondage, and that is you and I. So basically we can say Jesus became like a slave to take us out of slavery. That was his life. It is true greatness. Now we see a contrast to that because James and John come to him and say to him, we want a special position in your kingdom. We want, you know... No, we, we kind of deserve a place of high visibility and power. And we're seeing from their reaction that they are confused about the path of discipleship. Look what Jesus says in verse 41. When the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The fact that the ten other disciples became angry means they were harboring these selfish ambitions themselves and they were angry. James and John got there before they did. It wasn't that they thought, we get 
servanthood. They were not there yet. So they're thinking, oh, man, how dare they do that, what I really wanted to do and what's in my heart. So Jesus has to contrast the greatness of the world with the greatness of God's kingdom. And he says, okay, rulers in the world are bossy, domineering, power-hungry, oppressive. But those who want to be my disciples will be servants. I had a friend who likes to use the illustration, and I have before, where she, would, she was uh, kind of new to our state, went to some Young Life gathering, and she saw the Young Life leadership and people waiting on them and serving and bringing them chairs and doing things. And she only saw a couple of the Young Life leaders getting chairs out and setting out and putting things out. Which group of leaders really impacted her heart? The ones that were humble enough to serve and didn't want to boss it and lord over other people. We are to be servants. In fact, what's neat to think about is this woman's husband gets out chairs every week for a Sunday school class in this very church, serving God. This is the way of Christ. This is what God rewards. Look at Isaiah 52. See, my servant... God says, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. There is a a reward for choosing the humble, serving life that Christ had. To walk the path of discipleship, we must live a life of faith. Let's look back at Jesus on his path. Verse 34. He's just said, they're going to mock me, spit me, flog me, kill me. And then he says these great words. Three days later, I will rise. I just love that. I love that he ended it like that. I don't think the disciples heard it. He ends this list of really cruel things with words of triumph, with words of faith. Three days later, I will rise. Jesus had perfect belief that the joy of his resurrection was close at hand, even though it wasn't visible. And this is the definition of faith that we must live by if we want to walk the path that Jesus walked. We must believe and the power, and the promises of God, though they may not be visible to us. We believe them anyway. That's what faith is. Look at Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because all who come to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who honestly seek him. And I love the incredible illustration of this with Bartimaeus. It's one of my favorite stories. So let's uh, look at that. This is the last healing that Mark's going to record in his Gospels, the healing of Bartimaeus. It also concludes this section on what it means to be a true disciple. And I think he ends with this because Bartimaeus is sort of a picture of the disciples. They were still blind here, but one day, 
only a few days away, their eyes would be open to the reality of who this Jesus was who has walked next to them for three years. Look at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. In Jericho... There would have been large crowds leaving the city uh, to head for the Passover into Jerusalem. It was only 18 miles from Jerusalem. So the crowded streets were the streets that Jesus was walking on. Roads filled with people. It was typical for beggars to take advantage of that situation. So here we have Bartimaeus, blind, sitting on the roadside begging. But then he hears these words that come to his ears and bring him great hope and joy. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He immediately begins shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. People try to quiet him. Okay, once again, let's not let people know Jesus. Be quiet. You're annoying. You're not important. He shouts even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is the first time we see this title in the book of John. The faith that was in his heart is exploding out of his mouth. And he continues to speak this. Even though he was blind, he was not as blind as the Pharisees. He has figured out that Jesus Christ is the Son of the descendant of David, the promised Messiah to Israel. And that wells up in his heart as he calls out his name. Even though Jesus wasn't physically visible, he believed in his power anyway. And we have to realize Jesus is on this determined path to Jerusalem and the cross, and he takes the time to stop and meet with this blind beggar. And the people tell him, get on your feet. He's calling you. Come on. When it says he threw his cloak away, probably he was on the ground, and you've seen this. He probably had a blanket over his lap that extended out in a circle where people could drop coins on it. And I think it's the best picture ever. Because he throws that thing away. Who's going to be his provision now? Jesus alone. He does not need that cloak anymore. When Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what should I do for you? It's not that Jesus needed the information. He wanted him to be able to express his faith to Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, and in this verse it means my Lord and my Master. I want to see. Now, he wouldn't say that to Jesus if he didn't think he could do something about it. 
He trusts him and believes he can heal him. And Jesus replies, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately these eyes that have seen nothing look into the face of the son of David, the son of God, Jesus his Savior. And when he gets his sight, he thinks to himself, I'm going to go find my friends. I'm going to go home and tell my parents. I'm going to go back to the city to the Passover. He never takes his eyes off Jesus. And he says, I'm going to stay with you. You're my provision. And he gets to step onto the path of discipleship, the path that Jesus was walking. This path begins with us confessing our need. It continues in the great mercies of God in our life. And it continues in our steps of gratitude and loyalty and obedience to him. And I have to say, there is no other path in life that will satisfy our souls but the path of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, when we read these stories, we are amazed by your love and your patience and your provision. We give you our hearts and ask that you strengthen them to stay on the path that we will be your humble servants in this dark place. We need you and we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.